0: We are continuing in this series on the seven deadly sins. I'm hearing from some of you all that you are loving it. I don't know what that means, but I like it. And uh, I don't know what it says about us, but I think it's because when we come to church, we want to hear the truth. You know, if you just wanted to hear a nice flowery message, there's plenty of them out there in the interworlds. But we want to hear the truth. We want to be challenged. We want to hear about things that we're really struggling with. And so this morning, as we look at the topic, uh, formerly on paper, it was wrath, but I kind of changed at the last minute. I want to uh, really call it anger. And that's because I want you to find yourselves in these sins. And if like the word wrath just seems so big that if, that if I asked you, are you a wrathful person? I think most of us would think, ah, oh, I don't know. But if I say, are you an angry person? If you really think about it, I think you'll admit that you struggle with anger. And hopefully by the end of this sermon this morning, you will realize even more so. Uh, how much we all struggle with anger. So that's the goal this morning, is that you would uh, realize more and more how sinful you are. That's part of growing in grace and part of the process of sanctification. And so we talked the last couple of weeks, we started with pride. And pride kind of is the sort of father, is the foundation of all these sins and then leads into envy. And you're going to see this morning also how envy then leads to anger and we're going to continue to see how all these seven sins kind of feed upon one another. They're, they're intertangled. Uh, there's a reason this list of seven is here. It's not because any sin is worse than another in terms of affecting the condition of your soul, right? We're all sinners, and we sin because we have a sinful nature. But some sins have more consequences than others. And some sins kind of become the foundation for other sins and lead to further sin. Uh, and so it is with these seven deadlies and so last week Colin preached a great sermon on envy Uh, it was incredible I only was a little bit jealous that I hadn't preached it but it was great and this morning I want to talk about wrath we see wrath from cover to cover in the story of the Bible just as we talked about envy is found throughout the Bible it is the story of the world Uh, in its sinful condition, being redeemed. So I want to start with a definition. There are many ways you could define it. It's not a perfect definition, but as we come to think about it, we have to have a starting place. So anger is a passionate and active response of the entire person to a real or perceived wrong or evil. We become angry because we sense that something is not right, that we have been wronged. That evil has been done. Whether that's true or not, accurate or not, we perceive that. We regard a person or a situation as evil, and it interferes with what we want, with our desire, with our agenda. And our whole person is involved in anger in our response, and it can be very complex. We can be deeply angry without fully realizing our sin because Anger usually feels so right. See, with some of these sins, we kind of know it. We feel it right away. It doesn't feel good. Maybe in the moment it feels satisfying briefly. But but anger is tricky for a number of reasons. That's partly because we often feel justified in our anger. We feel like our anger is righteous. Righteous. And we're going to get to that. We'll talk about that this morning. There are different types of anger. And unlike sloth and greed, there is a holy righteous application of anger. So it gets tricky. But the truth is, often what we think of as righteous anger isn't actually. The way that we're expressing it is rooted in our sin. So another way to think about anger, kind of adding this on top, is that anger is an emotion characterized by antagonism towards someone or something you feel has done you wrong you get angry when you feel threatened when your comfort your power your agenda your ego feels threatened and some of you roar like a bear and some of you just do that thing that cats do that I won't even try to impersonate where they get angry and plus you just have to have a cat pick, because that's just still all the rage you know it was 20 years ago and, and now it is uh, still people like cat pics I don't know why so even if the technology fails at this point I got my cat pic- picture up there I'm happy we get angry because we think we are right we think our way is better we think we are more important the underlying message of the angry person is that things ought to go my way and when they don't Beware. It's a given part of our human fallen fabric, but we were created for something better. Now, typically when we think of anger, we think of the more explosive, what we might call hot anger. And we think that, oh, those are the people who really struggle with anger who are the ones who blow up. But the thing about anger is that it falls along a spectrum and there are different ways that it expresses itself. And so just because you don't have an obviously short fuse, it doesn't mean you don't struggle with anger. Wrath or anger can be strong, vengeful hatred, or it can be resentment. It can result in passive aggressive behavior, keeping a detailed record of wrong so you can throw it back at the person later. It can manifest through venting or internalization, through shouting or pouting, through blowing up or clamming up. Different versions of the same thing. A hot anger, or a cold anger. So I'll give you an example of this. A number of years ago, I was in a conversation with some friends. And one of the friends, she was trained to become a counselor at the seminary I was going to. And I've shared this, but it's been, it's been years now. And um, in that conversation, we started talking about anger. And I said, well, you know, I'm not really a person. I don't really think of myself as someone who struggles with anger. But I get frustrated a lot. And she very helpfully pointed out that frustration is a form of anger. that kind of made me mad at first. But (laughs) once I came to see that it was true, it was a very powerful moment in my life. It was really one of the first times when I realized that I am a person that struggles with anger. And I would imagine that there are many of you sitting out there this morning that many people wouldn't think of you as an angry person. But you're, but you're like me. You really deal with it. You deal with it a lot. And maybe you feel like you're covering it up or you're hiding it or people don't realize it, but it's affecting you and it's affecting the people around you. Anger can be sneaky like that. So let's don't limit ourselves to what stereotypically is anger. Let's realize that there are different ways that it expresses itself. And for some reason, this is the odd image that came to my mind. Whether you're a torpedo or an iceberg, you can still sink a ship. And one do- does so in a very obvious, explosive way, and the other one, it's like action happens and it's just, it's under the surface. You don't even realize it's there, it's coming, but it can still take a ship down. Some of our anger is very situational. It's just the fact that we we are human, we're finite, we're limited, we're sinful. And that's not to excuse it, but I think it's helpful to recognize that there are many conditions in which our anger manifests itself more easily. When it flares up, right? We all know about the hangries, okay? Some people, maybe all of us, but, but some particularly the way they're wired. When you're hungry, you get angry much faster. Maybe it's when you're tired or when you're sick. But, but any of those different ways when you experience the, the brokenness and your humanity in a finite way, your anger has a way of coming out much more quickly. And some of the best things we can do in those moments is to be patient with ourselves be quick to ask for forgiveness, be quick to repent. And we also, on the other side of that transaction, should show grace to others to recognize that while it doesn't excuse their behavior, if we can learn to identify those times, we can show extra grace, we can help people to manage those, we can learn self-awareness. All of that's helpful, at least at a human level. But again, one of the reasons that anger can be tricky at times to diagnose is that it isn't always sinful. We could really break down wrath or anger into three categories. The first one is God's righteous anger. The second one is human righteous anger. And the third one is human unrighteous anger. Now, the one we're going to spend most of our time talking about this morning is the third one. And I think that that's because that's the one that we deal with and affects our lives on a daily basis the most. But it's helpful to recognize, first of all, that God expresses anger. Again, this is different, right? God is not greedy and God does not express sloth, but there is a kind of anger that is holy and righteous. So a few examples. Numbers 32. It says, So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. God's fierce anger. First Kings fourteen nine. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and have turned your back on me. Even Jesus expressed righteous anger on a number of occasions. Mark 3, 5, it says, He, Jesus, looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely Restored. God's anger is a thoroughly developed theme in the Bible. So why is God so angry? Well, in some, God is angry at sinners and their sin. And it is right. It is just. A holy and righteous God should be angry at the world and its current condition and all of our sin and our rebellion and that we're living in a way that is not the way that he created us to live. It is right. God must In his righteousness and his justice, he must be angry at our sin. And God can do that in a way that is perfectly righteous. Now, there is a category, I would say it's a fairly small category, and that is of human righteous anger. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul wrote, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So in your anger, do not sin, which means you can be angry without sinning. I think it's hard to do. So let's walk through what that looks like briefly. Anger that is rightly ordered is directed at the right things and expressed in a right way for a right amount of time. Anger that is rightly ordered is at the right things and expressed in the right way for the right amount of time. Rightly ordered anger is an important, necessary component of true love. Sometimes it is right to be angry because there are some things that are worth being angry about. We should be angry about violence and abuse, racism, poverty, any expression of human brokenness. We should be angry at that. The tricky part is what do we do with that? So Robert Jones, in his book Uprooting Anger, he lays out criteria for righteous anger. First, he says righteous anger must be a reaction to actual sin. Sometimes things that we call right anger and that we declare right, we're we're not actually pushing up against sin. It's more that our preference or our desires are being compromised from our view. But it's not actual sin and so we may say, well, it's right that I'm angry, but if it's not a response to actual sin, it's not righteous. Secondly, it must be focused on God and his kingdom, right? Not pursuing our agenda, but it's focused on restoring God's vision for the world and focus toward him and that he is being glorified in what is being done. Third, and this is important, it must be accompanied by other godly qualities, so you can't just say, well, I'm, I am rightly angry about this, so therefore you know, I get to set aside all the other things Scripture tells me to do, and I don't have to worry about the fruit of the Spirit. No, a, right, a righteous anger will be accompanied by love and peace and self-control and patience and all of those other attributes, just as God's righteous anger is also tempered and informed by His other attributes as well. Fourthly, it must be expressed in godly ways. So it's against actual sin. It's focused on God. It's, it's accompanied by other godly qualities, and it's expressed in godly ways. This is why I would say it's a fairly small category, the, the way that we can do this. So I think it's helpful to understand that there is a righteous anger. However, I would challenge that most of the time, even when we're angry about the right things, we don't always respond in the right ways. So there is a category there. I'm not going to focus on that this morning, but I think it's it's important to, to see that. And Brian Hedges, in this book I've been reading called Hit List, it's on the seven deadly sins. He said, getting an accurate reading on your anger requires the heart-searching ministry of the Holy Spirit and sometimes the insight of a discerning counselor or pastor with well-developed skills in soul care. I will just say if you're working through this issue of righteous anger in your life and what it looks like, just know that it takes a lot of care to know how to express that accurately. Let's not use that as an excuse to justify what is actually sinful anger. So if we're honest, the majority of the time, our anger is not righteous. It's at least partially tainted by sin. And sinful human anger does not seek God. It cares more about being right than it does about love. It forgets the mercy that we have been shown. Sinful anger dishonors God. It hinders our prayers. It causes damage to relationships and it opens us up to spiritual attack. The sin of wrath or anger destroys business partnerships. It fractures families, splits churches, breaks marriages, alienates children, turns our hearts away from God and the warmth of his love, and wrath ultimately will destroy you like a flesh eating bacteria. Don't worry, I won't give you a visual aid on that one. Like a flesh eating bacteria, or anger eats us alive. And the root cause of our anger, as in all the sins, is idolatrous, disordered desires of our hearts. It's an issue of the heart. Anger is a heart problem. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whenever Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say, that's when you have to kind of go, "Uh uh-oh, this is for me. Right? He's taking things and he's saying just because you follow the letter of the law doesn't mean you don't still have a heart issue. And he's pushing it further and deeper. And that's how it is with anger. I think a lot of us, we think, well, if I'm not that stereotypical angry person, then I'm okay. I've got it in check. But anger is eating our hearts alive. It's a huge heart problem. And we must deal with it. It causes untold consequences in our world. James 4 says that warring desires are behind every fight and every quarrel whether that expression of anger is hot or cold, whether it's aggressive or passive-aggressive. This word that James uses here, it means inordinate desire, an excessive desire, an uncontrolled, an ungodly desire. In our sinful anger, it may be born of a desire for justice or esteem or comfort or approval or security. None of those things that is inherently wrong or evil, but when we have an inordinate desire for those things, That's when we get in trouble. And when someone crosses our inordinate desire for comfort or pleasure or justice, watch out. What follows may be a hot torrent of molten lava or the slow onslaught of an icy glacier of resentment. So let's take a few minutes to walk through our passage in Romans 12. I know it took me a little while to get there this morning. But right before we picked up in verse 17, Paul discussed how we should love our Christian brothers and sisters. And then in verse 17, he shifts the focus to showing love to our enemies. And the main idea in this section is captured well in the opening and closing verse. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but verse 21, rather overcome evil with good. This is how it works with anger. You don't overcome anger with anger. You know that but that's our usual response. Oh, you're going to get angry. Well, I'm going to get more angry. and It doesn't work out, but that's our instinct, right? And we bow up or we clam up or we whatever. We do different ways that we respond to that. We cannot overcome anger with anger. We cannot overcome evil with evil. The irony is that if you repay evil with evil, you've already lost the battle with evil. The weapons that overcome evil are grace and forgiveness and peace and love. Tolkien illustrates this dynamic well in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Any person who tried to use the ring to take down Sauron would themselves become evil in the process. Victory, if pursued in the wrong way, would be hollow and actually be defeat. Because in becoming evil in order to beat evil, evil still prevails. Do not repay evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. But does that actually work? Does it work? I mean, come on. Overcome evil with good? That doesn't work. That's not the way the world works. Well, it's the way that Jesus worked. 1 Peter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him Who judges justly. We overcome evil with good. Verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love that the Bible is honest. I love that it says, if it's possible. In other words, this is the goal. The goal is to seek peace, to actively be peacemakers, to seek out reconciliation, to seek out unity. Recognizing that in a fallen, broken world, sometimes it's not possible. In fact, I would argue sometimes there are situations when peace actually looks like distance. Peace looks like healthy boundaries. It's not unloving to create distance in in some situations. That is the right thing to do. The way to find the peace is to separate from that relationship there are times when that is the right thing to do the gold standard what we're seeking and what we're longing for is that if it's possible as far as it depends on you to try to live in peaceful relationships but it's not always possible it isn't unloving or unkind to create healthy boundaries I just want to be clear on that. Okay, the goal here is peace. The goal is reconciliation. But we have to have wisdom. We have to have the Holy Spirit. We have to be in prayer. We have to have other believers. We have to have discernment. But it's not unloving or unkind to separate yourself from a relationship that has become so unhealthy or so toxic or has become abusive. But if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, sometimes the other person doesn't want peace. You have to do your part. You can't do their part for them. But if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. He's saying we should avoid personal payback or personal revenge, taking the matter into our own hands. He's not saying that believers should just let evil people walk all over them. Or even if those evil people are people around you, he's not saying, look, be a doormat, just stand there, just take it all. Okay, that's not not loving either. But he's saying that ultimately we have to trust in God's judgment and wrath, that we can't place ourselves in the position of being the just judge. And he doesn't state it here, but I think it's understood that to avoid revenge and trusting God's, placing things in God's hands, it requires a supernatural forgiveness 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 doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge that wrong has been done forgiveness doesn't mean that there aren't still consequences for our actions or for our behaviors in fact sometimes there are legal consequences for those things and i think that as believers there are certain types of situations there are things that i think is okay i don't think this is a blanket statement saying you know what you shouldn't pursue legal justice You have to have wisdom in those things. There are times when we should try to work things out without having to take legal action because there are consequences and costs involved in that. But I don't think that the big picture of Scripture prohibits us from seeking legal action. In fact, in a way, sometimes that takes us out of the position of saying I'm going to make this right and placing it in the hands of wisdom of others of saying we're going to let this play itself out in the wisdom of community and of the rules and the guidelines that we've established. There can be great wisdom in that. So I think when he says don't take revenge, it's not vengeful to trust a legal process. He's saying don't take personal revenge. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't let your anger get the best of you. We are called in that, though, to forgive, to keep no record of wrong. That's what love does. Looks like God being in charge of the record-keeping department. We're called to forgive, to place things in God's hands, to say, God, you are holy, you are just. I'm going to trust ultimately that you will do what is right. Withholding forgiveness only hurts us. We think we're hurting the other person, we're secretly thinking of all these things in all these ways to try to hurt them, but they're not the one being hurt. We are. And we, certainly we hurt others, but withholding forgiveness hurts us excessively. Anne Lamott says this, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. I love that. Drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. We think we're hurting the other person. We're poisoning ourselves by not forgiving. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're called to use loving words and actions in our response. Again, part of loving them may be praying that God would change their behavior and their actions, not sitting by passively, just saying, well, evil people will do their thing. No, no. Part of that love expressing itself is praying that they will see the error of their ways. And that's what's behind this sort of cryptic statement about the burning coals. It sounds very vengeful, doesn't it? Like, ha oh, we're going to throw fire at them. But it was, it was an expression. And what it essentially meant was a way of saying that your good deeds will contrast with their evil ways. And it will, in a sense, pour judgment on top of their behavior. It will highlight the error of their ways. See, if you respond to their evil with evil, you've done nothing. You've made the situation worse. You've put more fuel on the fire. But if you respond to evil with good, then you highlight the contrast between the right way to live and the wrong way to live. The hope is that the person will see your example, they will repent of their ways. The believer's kindness is a way of encouraging the enemy's repentance. This is a different way to live, my friends. It's radical. It goes against human nature. I think it applies, obviously, in our interactions with those we consider enemies, but also as well those that we consider friends, that we don't add fuel to the fires. We respond with grace. It's hard to do. The only way we can do this is in view of what Paul wrote at the beginning of this chapter. When he starts this whole section of the letter, he says, in view of God's mercy, comma, and then he tells us how we should live in light of this incredible gift of the grace of God. How can we show mercy to those who don't deserve mercy? Because we see that God has shown us mercy when we did not deserve it. How do we just show grace in excessive ways? We know the grace that we have been given. So what's the remedy for our wrath? Some practical steps moving forward. I want to read a section of Psalm 37 that I think sets the stage for this. It says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. What's the remedy for our wrath? Well, first, it's to relinquish control, because control is what is at the root of all of this, isn't it? When we become angry, it's because we feel like our lives are out of control, and the truth is they are, right? Control is an illusion. It is an illusion we love, don't we? Whatever the place of prominence is in your home, that is where the idol of control sits. And you love it. We love it, don't we? But it's an illusion. It's an illusion. We have to willingly, joyfully relinquish control of our lives. That begins through a relationship with Christ. That's where it starts, this new way of becoming human. How do you deal with any of these sins? It starts by trusting in Christ, by surrendering control of your life, by recognizing you can't fix your problems, and you definitely can't fix your biggest problem, which is sin, and saying, Jesus, I need you. That's where it starts. But then after that, we all know it's every day we have to relinquish that control. Because the stronger our illusion of control the greater our anger will grow. Because we're just going to get more and more and more frustrated that our lives are truly out of control. They really are. Starts with relinquishing control. The second thing that's helpful is to reflect. Now, I don't mean in the middle of the moment you say, oh, let me take just a moment to ponder and reflect on my own anger. No, that's not helpful. You got to do the hard work other times to take some time to ask maybe a very practical question. Do you ever ask practical questions when you're talking to God in prayer? Here's a practical question. God, why am I so angry? Why am I angry? It's a good question. Maybe you need to ask the Lord that. Maybe you need to take some time to ask him, God, what is is the idolatrous desire? What is it? It's control. There's also other things. What are those things underlying? That are making me so angry. Because we often think it's the thing. But it's not the thing. It's the thing under the thing. Why am I so angry? Well, I'll tell you why. Most of them, are, they have names. Right? Why am I so angry? Well, it's my boss. It's my spouse. It's my kids. It's the kid next door. It's my used-to-be best friend. its That's the source of my anger. No, it's not. It's the thing below the thing, or it may be the thing below the thing that's below the thing. It takes work to unpeel those layers and figure out, God, what is the source of my anger? It takes prayer. It takes time. It takes discernment within community. It takes asking people around us to help us with that process. It takes maybe meeting with a counselor, or a pastor, or a trusted Christian friend to reflect and to do some work in the area of our anger because it's a huge problem. The next step is to repent, right? You have to, you have to acknowledge that you have a problem. Maybe you're, maybe you're like me. Maybe there's a point in your journey. Maybe that point is today when you actually realize that you're a person that struggles with anger because you've been able to figure out a way to say, well, no, that's those people. But no, maybe it's me. Maybe I struggle with anger. And maybe you're like me. Maybe many of the people in the room, people in your lives, wouldn't think of you as a particularly angry person. Oh, there. they have a sanguine personality. They seem to be easygoing. People have no idea how much you struggle with anger. We're getting real here at Crook of the Hills, aren't we, friends? <laughs> Stepped on a few toes in first service. We need to Repent. And then fourth, refrain. I love this. Psalm 37, 8 says, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. So as we do this work, and and the Spirit is revealing to us the sources of those things, then we learn a different way. We're still going to struggle with anger. But what are we going to do with that? Are we going to allow it to cause us to act out in sin, to cause damage to torpedo or to iceberg, whatever your strategy is, to relinquish control, to reflect on our nature, to repent of those things, to refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Because all of us, we're we're, we're creatures of habit so much more than we realize. And so many of our actions are just ingrained paths. And the more that you keep doing whatever you're doing, the more likely it is that you're going to keep doing the way, thing that you've been doing. That's the way it works. So you have to unlearn. You've, you've learned ways of responding to that anger, feeling, and reaction, and emotion. And maybe some of those have been good, but maybe there's a lot of those that haven't been good. And maybe some of those not-so-good things, you're the only one that knows about at this point. You have to relearn that path. So you're not going to do that all at once. You're not going to just surrender control to God once. You're not going to repent once. You're not going to reflect once. It takes a journey. That's why we're talking about these sins, because that's real life. We're all struggling with these things. And we'd all like something better. You ever run into anybody who says, you know what, I'm good, I'm done. Like, I'm, I'm good with the way I am today. That's major denial, right? No, we want something better. So let's ask for God's help in that. Would you join me as we pray? Father, you are good and you are patient. And God, you created us from something, for something better than however we're living today. And one of those silent killers of joy and of relationship and of community and of power and of mission is this underlying issue of anger. God, it's all built around this, this idol of self and our pride our lack of humility, the breakdown of love, and our, our absolute love affair with this illusion of control. So God, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us. God, I pray that you would work in power in my life and in the lives of those who are in this room this morning and who are listening online. God, anyone who, who hears this word from you, I pray, God, that you would bring them genuine help, that there would be conviction, and God, that there would be a change in their life and in their behavior. God, would you melt our hearts? Would you soften us? Would you show us more and more the way of Jesus? God, so that we can become the people that you created us to be. We need your help. Because God, I pray that you would be at work in powerful ways bearing good fruit. We ask all these things for your glory, and it will also be for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.